David Hurwitz, it's really good to have you in the Business Studio. Uh, I was looking at your share price. Since you took over as CEO in 2014, compound annual growth rate of 24.2%. That's even better than Warren Buffett. <laughs> Uh, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. We, uh, we don't often get compared to uh, Buffett, who is um, undoubtedly the best investor in the world. But, um, you know, we've just focused on, we don't think of ourselves as investors. We think of ourselves as, as owners and operators of assets. We focus heavily on buying well. We have focus heavily on running the business as well. And the market must do what the market does. And so far, it's liked what we've done. Jeez, so it, really, it really likes what you've done. Seven Rand 80 when you took over as CEO from Mark Lamberti. I'm sure we're going to have a chat about him in a moment. 44 Rand 50 today, so lots of happy shareholders. But just going back with you, I was interested to see that you're really a Joburg boy. Yeah, so I'm, I'm born and bred in Johannesburg, uh, have always lived here, have never thought of living anywhere else. You know, business has always been here. So as an adult, I've always wanted to be in business. You know, no thoughts of immigration, no thoughts of semigration. Our businesses are really South African businesses. We've looked at opportunities all over the world. And I think if you're looking to invest in businesses and then grow businesses, South Africa is a great place. So, you know, don't run away from it is my message to, to you know, entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, it's, it, it's very difficult to find a more entrepreneur-friendly place in the world. There's BEE, which is a big challenge. But outside of that, my goodness, the opportunities here are enormous. Yeah, I think they're great opportunities. I mean, uh, uh, our businesses are structurally positioned very well in South Africa. And I think if people look for those type of of positions, uh, I, I mean, just SA Taxi, you know, public transport does not work. The minibus taxi industry is dominant. It operates well. It's not dependent on government. And we saw that, what, in uh, 20 years ago? And we've just continued to push that, and it's a structural element which will be there forever. I always get the question, when will bus and train displace minibus? And we've only seen the opposite. Is this the only job you've ever had at Transaction uh, Capital? No, I haven't had many jobs. First of all, I'm a, I'm a CA, so I did my articles. Uh, Adverts, I, so again, uh, Joburg. Well, yeah, yeah, I studied, I studied, <laughs> schooled in Joburg, studied in Joburg, Adverts. Came out, did my articles at a small firm which was called Kessel Feinstein, oh, which yes. is now part of BDO. David Shapiro was there as well, wasn't he? I think he was, yeah, but, but before my time. <laughs> I should be well so. before my time. And then out of coming out of WITS, um, I went into, in actual fact, uh, I found some entrepreneurial guys who were backed by Michiel LaRue, and they started something called Borland Financial Services. Most people wouldn't even remember Borland Bank. And Andre Dupe, uh, Andre Duplessis, yes. who has just left Capitech, was also involved as kind of a shareholder representative. And we really was kind of a structured finance business. I was there for, I think, about 10 years. Eventually, HCR bought that. Um, and I wasn't a shareholder anymore. And the founders of Transaction Capital contacted me and said, no, you're an entrepreneurial guy. You can't be on a job. You need to be building something that you're you know, a shareholder in. And they had, at that time, only our risk services division. It was called MBD. It was actually structured as a legal firm. And, uh, you know, from there we started building. I joined them and we started building. We bought the taxi business, uh, which they had started in African Bank. We bought that out of African Bank. We bought a payment services business. We started a, a micro-lending business together with some other entrepreneurs called Bayport. Yeah, it's, it's really been a, a very entrepreneurial ride. But as you say, only really two jobs in my life. It's extraordinary, Michiel LaRue, 
Boerland Bank, the Capitec connection, they all they all came from Boerland Bank, Gerry and yep. and uh, Jan Stassen and uh, Rian Stassen rather, and of course Michiel. And you also had a connection with them. And if you look back at the South African market over the last ten years, if there were two stocks you wanted to be invested in, the one was Capitec, and the other one was Transaction Capital. So. I presume, and you having been the CEO of Transaction Capital for eight of those ten years, you might have picked up a few things from your interaction with him. He, he sounds like an extraordinary person. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if he would, re- you know, really remember me being there when I joined. That was straight out of articles. I was twenty-four, but of course, you know, watching those guys, uh, I learned a lot. And then, I mean, if I really think about. Uh, about transaction capital's journey, you know, it's it's really been yes, I've been the CEO and I'm a big driving force there. But you know, we do have three founders: Johnny, Jono, Mark Mendelovitz, and Rob Rossi. We always call them JMR, whether it's Johnny, Mike, and Rob, or Jono Mendelovitz Rossi. Uh, the JMR works either way, you know, and they are highly entrepreneurial people. Why aren't one of them the CEO? Uh, you know, they they great uh, investors, they great strategists. But I think probably one of their biggest strengths is that they know what they're good at and they know what they're not good at. I'm more of an operator um, and able to kind of drive performance through the business, whereas, uh, you know, they operate at a, at a different type of a level. So, um, and in truth, the three of them have all got different skills. Uh, you know, some of them are more quantitatively minded around credit risk and well, normal risk, accounting, tax. Others are more focused on um, strategy. So... Even within the three of them, they've got different skills and all do different things. Um, but they felt that, uh, you know, I had the best um, skill set in terms of running and driving the business uh, from an operational perspective. So, so JMR saw you and the work that you'd done before and the three of them got hold of you. That was how you joined Transaction Capital. Yeah, they, they had, had experienced me in uh, – Bullion Financial Service became a business called Metal – they had experienced me there. They knew me. And uh, when Johnny Copeland bought out Metal, the first phone call I got that morning when, it, when that article was in the press was from Johnny Giorno, who said, you know, it's time for you to come and, and join us. And at that stage, it was a family office. What about Mark Lamberti's uh, relationship with Transaction Capital? He was the former CEO of MassMart, then came in as CEO, and, and you took over from him. You did work as CFO under him for a yes. period. Yes, so Mark, so, so really what happened with um, Mark was that we brought him in or the founders brought Mark in because what we had was a highly entrepreneurial business, but businesses kind of all within a similar sector or related in some way to credit, uh, high stigma businesses related to credit and financial services. But because we were so entrepreneurial, they weren't pulled together into a group. So when Mark came into the business, his mandate was to actually pull these entrepreneurial businesses together, create proper governance, create proper structure, um, whether that was legal structure or um, people structure, and eventually bring it to listing. So he did a great job of that. None of us at that stage you know, knew about proper corporate structure and big business. We were just hard drivers of, of businesses and, and good entrepreneurs. And, and Mark really kind of put that corporate beat into the business and put the business in a state that it could be listed. Uh, He joined in about 2007, 
it was, as I said, a, a loose agglomeration of companies with similar shareholders, but actually all owned separately, but by similar shareholders. So, you know, I was a shareholder in Taxi together with management. The three founders were a shareholder, but the shareholdings were all different if you compared that to our risk services division. And then Bayport had their own management team. We were a great home for entrepreneurs. So we would work with management teams, people who had just started something and help them grow it. And, you know, so similar businesses, similar spaces, similar shareholders, but different shareholder percentages. So to pull all of that together with all of these minorities and put it into a group was pretty difficult and Mark did really well at that. He joined in 2007, as I said. We then tried to list the first time in 2010, weren't quite ready. When I say we tried to list, we did all the work and then decided not to go. So um, that was one process. And then we came back in 2012, the very beginning of 2012, and we managed to do everything in six months. So we started pretty much as about this time of year, you know, late January, and we listed, I think it was the 12th of June, if I recall. So intense work, and uh, we got it off. And that was really the end of, uh, well, that was the deliverable for Mark. He then ran the business for two years and felt it was, you know, time to then hand over. And he, he really did a great job. Yeah, it was an interesting career for him because after MassMart, and it's interesting the, the how you've unpacked this. And then he went off to Imperial to do something similar, to split yeah. those into two, two units. But the, the culture that you have at Transaction Capital, and you've, you've kind of uh, hinted at it a, a little bit already, is finding entrepreneurs and growing them. Was it a deliberate intention to go into financial services in, as, as a focus? And again, getting back to yourself and, and the JMR grouping. Yeah, so absolutely. We are all highly quantitative people in terms of uh, maths and stats and finance. Um, so that's always the facts been, matter. The numbers the matter. Matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't uh, you know? Don't put the calculator down. Is you know that's the type of thing we often talk about. So we all came from that world. Um, as I said, I was an accountant and then involved in structured finance. Uh, the three of them were all involved in the early, early days of establishing African Bank. So, you know, they had this vision to go into high-stigma businesses and create... What do you mean by that? Uh, you know, businesses either with... that had a, perce- a negative perception. So if you think of our businesses, I mean, their original business was they were part of the team that established African Bank, that, you know, unsecured lending at that stage, microfinance, uh, uh, what do they call them, shark, um, loan sharks, loan you know, that, that type of a stigma... Minibus taxi. Wow, I, that know, is a, a stigma for many people. That yep. would have been a, a, a huge leap to go into that area yep. debt because collection. of the perceptions. Debt, debt collection, okay. secondhand cars. <laughs> you know, so so um, high stigma businesses, and then putting the correct risk mitigation in place, putting the correct governance and corporate structure in place, such that you can first of all earn consumer trust or, or client trust. And then second of all, you can then attract institutional capital. And that then allows you to grow the business. So that was their vision in micro lending in the 90s. They had bought and started businesses in that space. And they had a vision of creating a bank that would do that. That was African Bank. They happened to leave in 2001. So well, well, well before um, you know, African Bank got was into trouble. Was that with Leon Kirkinis? Was yes. he involved there? They were and, part of that, and yeah. Gordon Schachert? Gordon Schachert, uh-huh. that's exactly right. Okay. So they actually crossed paths with Gordon. Gordon, they had micro-lending businesses that they put together with Gordon and then eventually together okay. with Leon. 
So that was that was kind of their 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 beginnings, um, which are financial services driven, and then they started both of our businesses that we own now, the taxi business and the collection business or the risk services business, they started with management teams in African Bank. And when they exited African Bank, they, they uh, took the risk services or, or debt management business, or they bought that out with them. And then a few years later, African Bank said, listen, we're focusing only on unsecured lending. You know, this taxi business is, you know, not really core different credit committee, secured lending, different type of collection mechanism, we're going to sell it. And that was when I joined, just before just before we bought uh, SA Taxi. And what does Bank. that taxi business do? Nowadays? Yes. Well, what uh, SA Taxi, what, what, yeah. what is so, it? I mean, so we would describe it as, uh, I'm going to use fancy words, a vertically integrated minibus taxi platform. Essentially, what it, we think of it as a platform, and, we, and a platform that we can scale into other asset classes, which I'll talk about in a moment. But essentially what it is able to do is because of the data set that it has from our tracking devices, a fancy word would be telematics, from the telematics data that we have and the mobility data that we have. So, so you have tracking devices in the taxis? In the taxis, yeah. Okay. And because we've got that, 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 that data set uh, or, or, or those taxis giving us data points every few seconds of the day, we are able to understand, number one, which are the highly traveled routes and the not-so-highly-traveled routes. We are able to understand uh, which operators are good and which operators are bad, and that then allows us to make decisions. We overlay it with other type of data, such as commuter density. By the way, of example, when the Mall of Africa was built, that changed commuter patterns. So we overlay it with a whole bunch of other uh, uh, data sets and, of course, vehicle value data sets, and that then allows us to either choose the correct route so if a taxi operator is looking to run a route, we can say, well, we know how many taxi operators run that route. We know how well they do on that route. We know if that route is overtraded or not. And can, you know, can this operator now enter that route? So that's so it's the, data. Data. It's all about data. Yeah, that's oh, the goodness. one. That's the one. In, in an industry that most people would think is uh, possible to get data from, you've Absolutely. got it all. Through Absolutely, the, through the, through those little boxes in the in yep. the vehicles, and then what we do is uh, the way that we engage with our client because that's your decision you make up front, what we call your credit decisioning. But then you have to collect from the client, and we will know if he's had a good month or not, because uh, we're tracking his movements every day. And when we call him up, you know, to make his payment, we'll know if he's had a good month or a bad month, and we will adjust our payment accordingly. Because you can't ask someone for money if he doesn't have it. That's extraordinary. So. Uh, you can take that much data, and if you see that the guy, the taxi operator, has not uh, been having too many fares, you can. You, do you cut back then? Do you reduce his so we still, instalment? He would go into arrears, and uh, so we won't. In terms of the legal contract, we won't reduce the instalment, but we will expect a lower a lower payment. And of course, it's a very honest conversation, uh, and it's not that complicated, you know. So we would say the very simple maths: the last six months on aggregate, you travel whatever. 7,000 kilometers on an aggregate, you pay 13,000 rand. And this month you've traveled 10. So can you catch up on your risk? Can you pay 15? Or this month you've traveled six. You know, we're not, we're not going to ask you for the 13. It's too much. Or we've seen that your vehicle's not operating. Is there a problem with it? 
can we process an insurance claim? Because we, so we finance the car, we insure the car, we install the tracking device and provide the customer with data. Uh, and then the other thing which is very unique is we have the ability to repair the car. So if we do have to repossess the car, or in our insurance business, if we have to process a claim, we will then repair the car ourselves to reduce cost in the insurance business and reduce the cost of claim. And in the finance business, we'll repair the car and then we'll be able to sell it and refinance so it. So vertical integration there we, from the beginning. Who do you actually lend the money to in the first so place? Do they have to get, get uh, approval from the taxi association? Yeah, so all individual operators who have a route. Uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to, to um, verify if you have a route in terms of operator licenses. Uh, but we would then work with the association. And, I mean, if, if you were to go and start running a route that you weren't licensed to run, it wouldn't end nicely. I wouldn't, I wouldn't last. Uh, I, yeah. I don't think I'd be uh, alive for very much longer. Or certainly that's a perception that well, these guys uh, are… Uh, we saw that in July. Protect their, yeah, operators protect their routes as they should. We saw that in you know? July with the riots. Uh, many of the middle-class people who were trying to protect their homes were bailed out of it in KwaZulu-Natal, by the taxi associations, by the taxi drivers, who are also middle class, which is very yeah. interesting at the, the way that that's evolved. Yeah, I mean, tax, uh, taxi industries the world over, most of them have been informal. I mean, our minibus taxi industry was completely informal and illegal. The previous government, the apartheid government, moved the black population to be remote from uh, their places of work and then left them to get in and out of the city centres by themselves. So this is an industry which was born out of necessity. Again, highly entrepreneurial people, uh, you know, started uh, their own public transport infrastructure. Um, but because it was informal and unregulated, you know, it was people fought for their space. And that's, I mean, if you go back and, and study some of the taxi stuff going on in Amsterdam, um, I think in the early 60s, very similar. So all the world over, you know, taxi roots and grounds have been fought for in the initial stages. How did you view what happened in July, the riots in July? In that the, certainly the feedback that I've got from many people on the ground, I have family and friends, I'm from KwaZulu-Natal, yes. was that the taxi drivers or the taxi owners, your clients, were very instrumental in protecting when the police were not at that time. Yeah, I mean, we spoke a lot with Santaco, um and actually NTA. I think they just. I think the taxi industry is an extremely misunderstood industry. From our perspective, uh, you know, we view it as kind of the heartbeat of our economy, and um, most South Africans love to hate it. First of all, uh, and sometimes there's very good reason for that. Um, but also, most South Africans think of it as a fringe industry, which it really isn't. It's probably a fifty billion rand industry. Um, I mean, we calculate that it, can pay, that it pays close on 10 billion rands worth of taxes in the form of fuel levy and VAT. So it, it is actually part of our economy, um, and they've been misunderstood for a long time. And I think this was really an opportunity for them, first of all, to say, you know, we, we're proudly South African, we're going to step up and do what we can do. And also, they, you know, they, uh, there is some self-interest there because they need people to move around, and to the extent that businesses are being burnt down and uh, you know that just kills uh, commuting uh, in the country so you know they felt that it was wrong and that they should try and you know stand up to it and they right. did a good job 
Indeed, they did. Unfortunately, Alec. I mean, what? Uh, not not three not, not three or four weeks later, where there was all of that taxi violence in the Western Cape. So, you know, a shining example of what they could do, mm-hmm. and then unfortunately, you know, a, a quick reminder that um, you know the industry can sometimes be be difficult. It's still developing, still evolving, and a difficult business. But you guys have appear to have cracked it. Yeah, if uh, I mean, I wouldn't say cracked it. We've done well there. We've got a long way to go and a lot to do. Um, for us and for the industry, quite frankly, yeah. If you if you can understand the risk correctly, and if you've got the right data to understand that risk, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, if you have the correct relationships, so the the taxi industry is a shareholder in our business, mm. and the correct intention, we're trying to formalise the industry more. We are trying to improve public transport. We are trying to give black entrepreneurs a chance of having a a, a great business. So I think if you pull that all together, oh, sorry, and then the physical side to manage the physical asset. So, you know, we kind of broke it up in pieces and said, how can we come at this correctly? And that's worked well for us. We buy cars. When you first invested in there, uh, it appeared as though you would be doing something similar to SA Taxi. In other words, having a, a shareholder, minority shareholder, um, taking owning about 75%. But I see from your latest and your report that you now have an option to take them out 100%. Uh, what's the thinking on that side and, and why indeed did you identify We Buy Cars as the prime play? Um, I mean, so first of all, uh, I think we were lucky there. As everyone knows, you know, NASPAS uh, wanted to buy that asset and the Competition Commission blocked that. So, you know, that gave us an opportunity to get in, otherwise we would have missed it. Um, so, you know, sometimes... You know, we were very lucky, but I sometimes, you know, kick myself that we missed the initial opportunity. So were Dirk and Fan uh, van der Valt, were they not courting you or were you not courting them? Did you discover not, not, they not were for that, sale? Not at that point. When Naspas yeah. turned down. Wow. Yeah. So, that so, is lucky. so it, did, it, did happen, it did happen late. And yes, we loved a lot of things about the business. First of all, as I said, we always thought of, we think of ourselves as a great home for entrepreneurs. We can work well with entrepreneurs. Um, you know, guys like Dirk and, and Fawn, um would never come into a corporate. So you spoke a little bit about culture. The the type of values and culture that we have is a, an ownership culture. We don't think of ourselves as professional managers. We think of ourselves as owners. We think of ourselves as partners. We think of ourselves as entrepreneurs. You know, you're not coming into a corporate culture. But then on the other hand, you have all the benefits of governance and institution that allows us to access capital correctly, etc. So... So there was immediately a great kind of understanding that the culture would work. What we wanted to do, I, th- I think what the NASPAS uh, deal would have given them was uh, the ability to grow the e-commerce side of the business probably a little bit quicker. Besides, despite that, we've done very well in growing e-commerce and then online inquiry and all of that. And what we saw that we could bring them was the finance and insurance side or the F&I side. And the very exciting thing that we see there is you've got a fantastic trading business. Again, high stigma business. We're operating on the older side of vehicles. So, yes, we compete with everybody. But if you think of Motus and um, Barlow World and Bidvest, they're selling new cars and then secondhand cars, maybe three, four, maybe five years old, but nothing older than that. We're selling cars, uh, our average cars, pretty much nine to ten years old that we sell. So we're going into that space where, where, where kind of our peers are independent operators, no brand, 
low customer service, low customer trust. And we're, of course, now coming in with a trusted brand, a very well-known brand. And people are feeling very comfortable and confident to either sell their car through us or buy a car through us. So that's kind of what, they, what they've delivered. And then they've delivered this unbelievable tech platform to be able to value a car and buy it online and do that quickly and conveniently and then being able to sell it on an e-commerce platform. So they had done an unbelievable job of developing that. And what we felt we could bring is the finance and insurance side. And what we're looking at, because we've got this big stock of vehicles, um, yes, we can offer all of the type of products that a bank could offer. But what we can also offer is something on the line of cars as a service. So, you know, a person doesn't have to buy a car for five years and enter into a five-year contract he could come to us and say, you know, I want that Toyota, and we'll say to him for whatever, 1,900 rand, you'll get the Toyota with the, for 12 months with the finance, uh, with the insurance, with the warranty, with the scratch and dent or rim and tie or whatever you want. And uh, we can then, at the end of 12 months, he can bring the car back. I mean, we've got 8,000 cars that we're selling and buying, every, actually 10,000 that we're buying and selling every month. And you can upgrade to the new BM or whatever it might be. So a very digital-based and flexible car arrangement is where we want to try and get to. That's the end game. It sounds very disruptive because the, the, the perception is that when you buy a car, you finance it, you keep it for five years. You hope that it's going to retain its value for the bullet payment at the end, and then you might upgrade thereafter. But this is a... A different Very way different. of looking at it. And, it's, and it is because we are buying and selling cars on aggregate that are nine years old every 10,000 of them every month. How do you know the so cars are going to run, that, uh, that they're going to break down? Again, so it's data again. So when you are buying and selling a car like that, uh, you know, you're, learning, you're, you're learning what it's worth. Once we've bought the car, we then put it through what we call a DECRA. We will get a DECRA report on that car. And that then tells us everything about the car, but it's post the fact. So sometimes we will get it wrong, but most of the time you don't. We do, so... so do you put a telematic in, in those cars as well, uh, the black box too? Not yet. Stuff scar, mm-hmm. I'll talk about that in a moment. So, so um, you'll do an online inquiry. We'll then take the data on that car, run it through our database, and we'll provide you with a very firm price, with, sometimes within minutes. You'll then get a call. Someone will come out and, and actually physically look at the car, often within hours, um, just to verify it is what it is. And hopefully our buyers are good enough to pick up if there are any problems. Most of the time they do. They, can then, they will then pay you before they drive off and money will be in your account. So seamless process, and we assume all the risk, no comebacks or anything like that. We'll then take it to one of our centers. We'll do a DECRA report on the car and see exactly what the condition is. That's now a detailed inspection, but that's very valuable for the buyer who's going to now buy the car from us. And all of that will go, the car will get washed, photographed, and that car will then go onto our website with a DECRA report attached to it, and someone can buy it with a high level of confidence because there's full disclosure. And this is happening internationally. When, when uh, we went to the UK for three years to set business up there, we did a similar thing. We bought a car, not through an online uh, trader, but when we sold it, it, it happened very quickly. Mm. We, we, had a, we put it online they came back to us. There's quite a lot of competition over there. And very quickly, we were offered a price. The person came to see. They chiseled us down by a couple of hundred pounds, but, it, but not, nothing really material. And that's the accepted way of doing business over there. Here, I think many South Africans are still of the mind that, my goodness, how do you actually sell this car? Do you, 
go and see some second-hand car salesman in Jewel Street and, uh, and, and worry that you're going to get ripped off or if you buy one, similarly. But yeah. it's almost like this high-stigma business, as you call it, is uh, making second-hand cars uh, more palatable. Absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely, absolutely right. We've disrupted the market. Certainly on the buying side, when we're buying cars, that was kind of the first disruption. Uh, the second disruption now will be how we sell the car because that we're turning on its head as well. About 30% of all the cars that we sell are on e-commerce and we, we've seen that grow. COVID was a, you know, really accelerated that. Mm. The bulk of that is being sold to other dealers. So many of these small independent dealers are not able to access stock and they will buy from us. But a large component is sold uh, e-commerce to the consumer. So this is, this is what we've turned on its head. The consumer looks at the car on the internet, goes through the DECRA report, checks that he's happy with the price, buys the car, we then deliver it to him, and he then test drives it. He's got, I think it's something like five days and 150 kilometers. If he's happy, he keeps it. If he's not, he sends it back. Pit Fulion said that you actually bought We Buy Cars at a very good price. He compared it with Kazoo, I think, uh, the, yes. the uh, UK operation. How was that possible? Was it, was it really a function of the fact that Farn and Dirk were wanting to, I suppose, reduce their risk to their business in a way, and that NASPAS had been turned down by the Competition uh, Commission? Was it, in other words, were you the only potential buyer in town, or was there something else? That no, it was, still, it was still highly competitive. There were others looking at the asset, and you know, we were moving very quickly. It happened in the middle of co- so a few things. First of all, it happened in the middle of COVID, and people were nervous. Uh, I'm not saying Farn and, and Dirk, but but certainly other buyers were nervous. You know, how long will you know dealerships be closed? Uh, you know, will e-commerce be strong enough to get us through a, a COVID if it's an, for an extended period of time? So people were quite nervous, and we did take a view that, uh, as with all things, you know, there'll be ups and downs, but it will normalise at a point in time. That was the first thing. The second thing is, and you're going to think this is like so simple, but we got in our car and we went there. Uh-huh. You know, we weren't meeting over Zoom or this or that. We got in the car, we drove there, we met with these guys, we spent days with them to make sure that the culture was right and there was a great culture fit. But it's a great, it's a significant part of your business. So I assume yeah. that you would, you would need to do that yeah, given absolutely, your culture. yeah. But so, so we built a great relationship. Uh, Fledge are a shareholder, were a shareholder there, which Who's is uh, Louis van der Vat from a, uh, one of the co-founders of Atterbury. So, you, I mean, you do, uh, that's kind of a private equity fund that he started um, with Conrad Fleischhauer. So they are financially astute people, and really what we were able to do was to be able to pay a price that was more than what they would have got if they had done the NASPAS deal. But NASPAS are coming at you now in that side. They're also going to enter the market. Clearly they've been knocked back by not buying WeBuy cars. Are they coming with any particular advantages? Well, they own Auto Trader. I mean, it's very, very different. If you think of... Well, what we are is we are a stockholder. We, we take principal risk. We buy the car, we sell the car, and we use data and tech to do that. If you think of uh, what AutoTrader does is they're just a marketplace. So they, and they're a marketplace for dealerships to market their vehicle to a consumer. 
So yes, they have an exposure in the space. They also obviously own OLX. But you know, this is you know owning and managing and moving stock around is is different. But it's a highly competitive space. I think there are lots of people in the space that do different things. I've already said, you know, kind of the listed groups are more focused on new or else younger cars. You know, we are more focused. Or we're focused all across the the, the segment. You know, uh, only secondhand, but from whatever one year old to twenty year old. But disruptors traditionally start. Our cheap and nasty, well, bottom end of the market, and then move up. Is that the runway for We Buy Cars in the future? Surely there's no reason why you couldn't move into the this, the space that uh, those three companies that you mentioned earlier yeah. now dominate. Yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, never, uh, I shouldn't say never, I don't think into new. I mean, the trend, uh, again, kind of the, the structural trend that we're seeing in South Africa and in actual fact, um, across the world, is that people are trading down. OEMs are battling to produce cars at a at an affordable price, and for that reason, people are are trading down. We still, by the way, want new vehicle sales to grow because that grows the car park. We need new cars coming into the country because we'll trade them two or three years down the line. Uh, but what we're seeing, the, kind of the structural shift, is that people buying a secondhand car is becoming a very good value proposition uh, across the board. The other structural shift you see in South Africa is that if you take a look at public transport choices from 2013, or transport choices, from 2013 to 2020, people travelling in private cars stayed exactly the same, 23%. But in 2013, 4% of the 23 were owners and whatever, 19% were passengers. That number has practically shifted to about 18% being owners and 5% being passengers. So we're seeing this middle class coming through, wanting to own a car, first-time owners, and we are a great, we facilitate that. So people who are looking at investment opportunities in South Africa with a broad perspective uh, will be seeing that the middle class is growing in the country. And that's where you're targeting. Uh, on the hand, one hand, taxis, the other hand, we buy cars, and you've explained that very well. Are there other segments that appeal to you that that we might see you playing in in future? Yeah, I mean, so so we understand uh, insurance very well. I think a lot of obviously insurance and finance, and a lot of these we see big opportunity to grow within our businesses. So we often we look at other segments all the time in the financial services space as a as a fourth pillar. Um, you know, if that happens or not will depend, uh, you know, upon what we're what we're seeing. We're not just opportunistic. I mean, you know, we're hunting for things systematically or deliberately. But let's see what comes out of that. But there's a, I mean, we think there is huge growth in South Africa. So if we can just get the finance and insurance element right on rebar cars, that's another whole business. I mean, I think Motus makes almost a billion rand on finance and insurance, and we trade, I think, a similar number of cars. Now, We Buy Cars doesn't even make a billion rand yet. but uh, In total. Uh, in, in total, and finance and insurance is a tiny element in the business right now. It, just to close off with, and from an investor's perspective, we've seen the growth in the share price almost uh, match the growth in earnings uh, over a period of time. And then suddenly, well, we had 2020, which was a bad year for you and for everybody. Yeah. But suddenly last year, it's like the investment community woke up to transaction capital being a, a wonderful place to put their money because the share price doubled and hence your compound mm. annual growth rate uh, surging forward. Doesn't that make you nervous that 
on the one hand, you, you're tracking your, your, your profit growth, but then suddenly there's this, this massive demand for uh, your shares. They've been revalued, which brings, I guess, new pressures. Yeah, I mean, the market is, um, I remember Mark Lamberti saying to me, you know, working for these three founders is, is never easy when you're working for hard-driving entrepreneurs. And Mark said to me, listen, the market will be a much more difficult taskmaster than the three of them. Not sure which is true, but anyway. Um, but I, I, I really try my best not to look at the share price. I think as we opened up this discussion, I, I actually said, you know, I, I try and drive a good business, you know, and uh, invest well and then grow the asset that we've invested into. And I think we're pretty good at that. And then we'll let the market take care of itself. So I try not to look at that. But yes, it does obviously create pressures or, or, or tension for me as a CEO. Uh, but How much really, time do you spend talking to investment analysts so, or investors? So again, one, one of the kind of strengths of transaction capital is that because we've been able to partner with such good entrepreneurs, I mean, you couldn't want anyone better than Farn Fund the Vault running that business. So you keep him in there. We didn't discuss that question on the, on the puts and calls, but I would prefer it if Farn stayed in for longer, quite frankly. Okay. Um, and as we get to know each other, let's see what happens there. But, um, you know, so, so, so I'll be very involved with the CEOs running their business, but we have proper teams and proper entrepreneurs running any of our, any of the businesses that we own, even if like in TCRs where we own 100%, um, all of those people running those, the, the businesses are staked either at TC or in the underlying business itself. And, um, and I'm engaging with them intensely. Uh, and it does then give me a little bit more time than the average CEO would have to engage um, with external counterparties, debt investors, shareholders, regulators, uh, or the like. So is but I try to keep it. I try to keep it less than twenty five percent if okay. I can. Is capital allocation then the thing that that keeps you awake at night? Yeah. So so I think if you look at what we do, capital allocation uh, is huge. Um, risk management is huge. Setting strategy is huge. But you know, you'll talk to you'll talk to certain CEOs, and they'll say, "Yeah, you know, we've got um, very structured engagements with board meetings and ELCOs and risk committees and credit committees." And yes, we have all of that, but we only own three assets. My biggest wealth is in TC stock, and I feel as I'm an owner of those assets. And uh, my offices, we actually don't have a head office, which is something I really love. We've got an office at SA Taxi. We have an office in our risk services business, and hopefully in time I'll have a desk for a few people and a space in We Buy Cars. And when I wake up in the morning, you know, I think, which way should I go? We Buy Cars, taxi. Literally? Yeah. You don't have it in your diary, I'm going to go and see you. I'll follow my diary, but I mean, I can go wherever I want, but I'm not going to, there's no ivory tower uh, or anything like that. And, you know, we're in the businesses. We've got very formal engagements with the CEOs. But um, I'm talking to all of them every day. So you've got the three legs. You said earlier, a fourth leg is possible, but you're not chasing anything at the moment. There's no, that's, not, that's not the way you guys go about things. No, we, we, we are focusing intensely of grow, at, at growing what we've got. There is a deliberate strategy to look for others, but you know, I can't say if that would happen or not. You know, because deals are, you know, there's no second place. You either do it or you lose it. This, this reminds me so much of, uh, of the structure of Berkshire Hathaway to a large degree. Tiny head office, although they've got 85 subsidiaries. So they're yes. obviously they've been going for 60 years. But it's, it's that 
it's almost that structure. Is there anyone or any business that you guys at Transaction Capital have learned from in the way that you've structured the operation? I mean, we've learned a lot from lots of people, but I don't think there's anybody that we've particularly tried to replicate. You know, Buffett is is very different in that um, you know he invests and then he, you know, he hands kind off. of hands off. We're all I shouldn't say always. We like to have a big stake in an asset, and we and we have to be able to develop that asset. You know, we won't just buy something because we've bought well and we think it's got a good growth trajectory. Yes, it must have all of that, but we must be able to do something. Like in We Buy Cars, we were able to, we still to be seen, but, you know, we will be able to deliver the finance and insurance arm and grow, you know, grow the business even more without having Farn and Dirk to take the eye off the ball. They can continue with e-commerce and uh, physical rollout of infrastructure and trading of cars, and we'll build that for them. So we haven't really, we haven't modeled ourselves uh, on anything. I guess we've built our own you know, our own, uh, our own ethos and our own model mm. just by, you know, by learnings on the way. 